Hey guys, welcome to episode number four of the 1ADC podcast. We are the world's largest student-run consultancy for non-profits and social enterprises. And this episode is brought to you by the 1A Degrees Consulting Branch from the University of Melbourne. As per usual, always feel free to have a listen to our prologue for a better understanding of what this podcast aims to achieve or visit our socials. There are timestamps below for better browsing access to areas and episodes you wish to navigate to, as well as the socials for this week's guests, so you can check out their profile whilst listening. Enough for me for now, as per usual, let's get into this week's episode. So on our fourth episode of the 1ADC podcast, uh, strap on your seatbelts because boy, this one's going to be a blast for a lot of listeners. Uh, today, we get the fantastic opportunity to interview Danish Semmer. Uh, strategy manager at Seek, who formerly worked for Deloitte as a consultant specializing in technology and all things digital. There's more to Danish than meets the eye, so I'll leave the majority of this episode to see what great insights he has to share with us today. So Danish, uh, welcome to the podcast. Uh, thanks for having me, Kevin. No, thank you for coming on. I actually kept that introduction quite vague, mainly because your journey is like a hill with many rocks and crevices in it. It's like a reflection of a climb with many obstacles along the way, but I think I want to kind of keep that as a teaser and build into it along the way. So Danish, can you actually just introduce yourself and tell us a little bit more about your background? Yeah, sure. I think that introduction is overstating it just a little bit. Uh, I'd say I'm a pretty lucky and privileged individual. Um, so as a background, look, I was born in India and Chennai to a very humble family. Um, and I grew up you know, there and I moved to Brunei, which is a really small country for three years or so. And then I moved to New Zealand when I was nine and I grew up there. Um, I lived in Auckland, which is a wonderful, wonderful city. Really enjoyed it. And um, my brother was eight years older than me and he did software engineering. And coming from a, you know, Indian family where there's, you know, a lot of pressure to do something that's really professional and, you know, that's lucrative. Um, engineering is always carved out as a profession for me. But when I got to university, um, I selected it not because I loved engineering, but because I chose the easiest possible option in my head, which ended up being software engineering, purely because I eliminated everything else. Um, I said, you know, I don't want to write essays because that's going to take too much time. I don't want to, you know, talk to sick people. So I'm not going to be a doctor. I'm not going to do arts. I'm not going to do law. And, you know, I, and I'm not going to drawing. So there goes architecture. So at the end, I just picked engineering and there I was. Um, and I picked software because that way I don't have to go to any you know, construction sites and I just get to be, you know, on a keyboard and computer. And that's what I did um, as a result of that. And I, you know, I went on a few adventures. I figured out that I really like gaming and I started a business there, which I'm sure we'll touch on. Um, ended up becoming a consultant and did that for a few years, moved across to Melbourne and love the city. I'm here now, even though it's during lockdown, it is still a wonderful city. And now I'm a strategy manager at Seek. That was a whirlwind. Hopefully that works. <laughs> yeah, I think you are the definition of diversity when it comes to backgrounds and origin stories, Danish. And I think it's why my respect for Danish as an individual is quite high. Uh, you come from New Zealand and you also have a completely different background to what you're doing right now at Seek. And I think coming from another country and uh, being able to navigate that work life around Australian culture, especially here in Melbourne, is something I feel like a lot of international students struggle with when they first come to Australia. And so, Danish, how has it actually been navigating that work-life balance that is being a strategy manager at Seek, uh, doing an MBA part-time, and also holding advisory and board roles for different not-for-profits? Because I would understand time management is like a skill that you've expanded their depths of with this many commitments under your plate. Yeah, so I'm glad you uh, asked that, Kevin, because I realized I completely forgot to mention those things that I do in my <laughs> intro. So I am studying an MBA part-time, and I am the president of Environment Education Victoria. Um, and it does pack my time. So very solid question. So in terms of work-life balance, uh, 
I, I had a very corny take on this when I was younger and earlier in my career. I used to call it life-work balance because life should come first and work comes second, right? Um, I've stopped saying that now because that's very corny. Um, but ultimately, for me, I've, as I speak to lots of people and I think about my career and my journey, it always comes down to thinking about where I want to get to and how I get there in a faster way. Uh, and the answer is always working with the right people and making sure you're learning as rapidly as possible. And so for me, you know, working at Seek is a no-brainer. Like it's great work, great people, great team. Tick. And doing an MBA, absolutely. I get to learn so much more. I get to formalize a, you know, a base of knowledge that I picked up during consulting and I get to go to that a little bit more depth. And I also want to make an impact and, you know, spend whatever little spare time I have making sure that I can contribute back. And so I volunteer as a president and then I'm Education Victoria. So yeah, that takes a lot of time, but can I justify why I spend all those hours doing all those things? I absolutely can. And 40 hours, yeah, it's not a nine to five, right? I do, I do a lot more than that, but it's a decision that I've consciously made and I'm happy to do that. So for me, all those extra hours contribute to me having a more fulfilling and greater life in the future. And so, yeah, does it meet the definition of work-life balance for me? It absolutely does. Is it difficult? It absolutely is sometimes. Uh, but as a rewarding, I think so. Yeah, definitely. I think your selection of experiences there and your ability to stand by them, even during COVID as well, uh, that's very commendable. And there's a lot of resemblance points I pick out there from uh, your statements as well. Uh, one being uh, time management, of course, is being an essential to work-life balance, especially since in any role in consulting or on the lines of consulting, I think majority of it isn't shift-based, as you mentioned. And so you find yourself working more than the average nine-to-five person would, right? Yeah, absolutely. Look, um, I think if you're in consulting and I'm sure your listeners or, or considering careers in consulting, you can't expect a nine to five. I think uh, some careers you absolutely can, right? Let's say you're a software engineer and you've got your 40 hour work week, you've got a sprint, it's clearly defined and there's not rapidly changing scope. Sorry, I shouldn't say that. There occasionally is scope changes, but people are a bit more understanding of your hours and there's no critical deadlines like you would have in consulting where different clients, different partners are all expecting things out of you. Um, I remember having a conversation early on uh, in my career with the head of consulting New Zealand at Deloitte. And he just told me that work-life balance is a myth, which I, you know, that kind of broke my uh, naivety and my outlook on, you know, my professional career being like, oh my God, are you telling me I'm never going to work 40 hours a week? It's always going to be more. It's always going to be less. And to some extent that's true. Uh, but I, I would think about work-life balance and, consulting once again as not in terms of hours but in terms of what you get to do realistically you'll work some weeks 30 hours some weeks 80 hours right and the ideal is you have more weeks closing trending towards that 40 30 than weeks trending towards that 80 or 90 and if that works out that's great but ultimately work-life balance to me is making sure i'm not sacrificing the things i want to be doing or i need to be doing in my personal life and the time you are at now, if assuming a listener is one of the students at university, et cetera, you've got a lot of time to discover yourself and, you know, understand what your passions are, what you like doing, whether that's, you know, going dancing on the weekend, going rock climbing, going to the gym, going traveling every other month. I don't, I don't know what it is, right? But if you can find what it is that's important for yourself and make sure that you're not sacrificing that through your work and you're not sacrificing that too often, then that to me is achieving balance, right? Um, for me, that's, you know, I want to be able to gym multiple, three, four times a week. I want to be able to spend time with my friends and family. And I want to be able to, you know, go have dinners. And I want to go, you know, rock climbing on the weekend. Whatever it is I want to do, I make sure that I still can do all those things. 
one or two weeks a year, maybe I can't, but most weeks I can. So yeah, am I balanced in terms of 40 hours works and then the rest of life? Probably not. But am I balanced in the sense that I'm getting to do all the things I want to do in life? Yeah, absolutely I am. Yeah, we talk about prioritization and juggling commitments as something you're really good at. And I think it's because Danish has been doing it for a long time now. I think because like strategy and consulting has been in your expertise for almost a decade now, back when you were building the foundations of your skill set and experiences. Uh, oh, that <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so formerly known by his uh, in-game name, uh, Diff the Ender, uh, Danish co-founded the C5 network. And before that, he even spent some time in uh, Curse Incorporated, where he built a name for himself, uh, analyzing data for prospective gameplay, and also working with a portfolio of clients in the gaming industry, such as uh, Riot Games, uh, Razer, Cloud9, and many more, of which I feel our audience members who know League of Legends or have dabbled into MOBAs have definitely heard of. I think one of the next things I really wanted to ask you about is something along the lines of uh, motivation and commitment, because we are now having worked with the likes of Deloitte and you now work with Seek as a strategy manager. I think majority of this would have been possible if you didn't persevere and develop your experience as a gaming consultant back in the early days of 2013 and 2014. And so Danish, what prompted you to kickstart your career in a domain that many others would be too scared to do? As I think most students nowadays are confined to garnering the experiences in a more corporate suit and tie environment. Uh, that's a great question. And so just to expand on what I actually did there, through university, as I said, I'm a software engineer sitting in a lab, getting quite bored and playing games, what many of you probably are doing. And one summer I actually got so bored that, you know, my friends are busy that day for some reason. I decided after playing a bunch of League of Legends that I actually wanted to start writing about this game on a fan blog. I don't know why. It's just, you know, it's the silliest thing I could think of, but that's what I decided to do. And I reached out to this um, celebrity if you were at that time he's a pro player who he used to have who used to run that blog and I said hey look um I want to write for the blog I just want give me a column give me a guest column I'll write there once a week and I'll just contribute for free I'll just do this and to my eternal luck um, and my privilege as I said in my intro he said yeah so sure let's you know let's do this and so I started writing articles um you know about the game about what's happening in esports just everything League of Legends related ended up picking up a niche that the readers really enjoyed and that somehow blossomed into me getting paid to write articles. And then I eventually, for a variety of reasons, which we can expand if we need to, I left and started my own company um, doing almost exactly the same thing. But if I was to say it, just a little bit better because it is competition. And I did that for a couple of years and I thoroughly enjoyed that time. So to your point, Kevin, yeah, I picked up a lot of skills doing that. Um, I picked up how to you know, run a team, work with people across the world because Half the time I was in my bedroom working on Skype with people across US, Europe, Australia, Asia, all around the world. Um, picked up skills on how to effectively grow a business from absolutely nothing from my bedroom with $100 to my name. And also, you know, achieve really cool things that I think my readers enjoyed. Um, you know, for the League of Legends players out there, we got an exclusive interview with Baker, um, which is... For people who don't know, basically the Michael Jordan of League of Legends, and I got an explicit interview in Korea. And so things like that were really cool for me. And ultimately, that all that experience was what really helped me get a job as a consultant and kind of build my career. Um, and to, to get back to your original question of why I started my career there, it wasn't a conscious decision, right? As I said, it was me getting bored and saying, hey, I've got nothing to lose. Uh, you know, I'm in uni. Well, you know, I've got $100 in my name on my home. Like, 
what are the worst thing that could happen to me, right? Absolutely nothing. So I'm just going to go out and do this thing because I think it's cool and I enjoy it. And it just so happened that it all worked out really well for me. Obviously, there's a bit of hard work in there and, you know, some sweat behind the scenes. But when things line up and opportunity arrives, you take it and sometimes it works out and sometimes it doesn't. And luckily for me, it worked out. Yeah, that mindset is one I feel every university student strives to have. And it's because gaming is such a niche field, right? To find yourself navigating your career in. Uh, I think esports nowadays, not just in Australia, but globally, it's like really frowned upon as a pathway one should not invest in, especially as a full-time job or a professional career. So I think that's another thing I have to give props to Danish for. Uh, managing and starting his own business is definitely something not easy to do. Actually, it's something really hard to do. And not many others seek out the opportunity to do it, let alone do it to a successful level whilst balancing studies as well. And so we've talked about foundations. Uh, we've covered the story. Now I wanted to kind of discuss the present new Danish uh, strategy at Seek. And so we all know Seek as this platform everyone goes to to look for the next venture in one's career, or better yet, that job that does kick off one's career. But I think what most people don't know is that Seek was actually named the overall best place to work and also the best place to work for technology this year by the Australian Financial Review. And so I think on one level, it really demonstrates the capacity Seek as an organization can achieve in different dimensions and different ventures. And on another, it really goes to show that Seek is a great company to work for. And so what I want to know is why you made the jump to Seek a little over a year ago. And how does your role, Danish, kind of relate to what we know about Seek as a job search company? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Seek is a wonderful place to work. I think the reason I made that jump, uh, I'd say, what was that, April 2020, is after spending about five and a half years in consulting, one thing that... I really felt was, look, I'd picked up a great set of skills, great network, and got to do some really cool stuff. But as a consultant, you work a lot on short and sharp engagements, right? A client will bring you in to say, hey, we need to solve this problem. Can you tell us how to do it? And you know, we'll take our best guess at it based on the information we pick up in three limited weeks. And we'll say, hey, you know, I think this is the plan. Let's present it back to the execs. And if they're all good, then away we go. That's a successful project, right? And that's quite useful in terms of learning right because you get to work with so many different clients and so many different people and you, you accelerate your career growth in that sense but what you don't get to do is really stick around at a client and see if that plan actually ended up getting delivered see if that actually ended up making a difference and so one thing i really wanted to do is to say well look i've spent five years now i've learned so much let me see if i can actually apply that or longer than three weeks let me just see if i can do a bit more than just planning and saying hey this is what we should do and then it's leaving that company forever, right? And so for me, I want to switch to industry to get that experience and actually put myself to the test. Uh, consulting had honestly got a little bit too comfortable for me. And so I said, yeah, let's switch to industry. And then the question was, well, what sort of job do I want? Um, strategy manager, I think made sense for me because it's an area that's deeply interesting. You solve complex problems. And then you say, well, what sort of company do you want to do it at? And you know, you can look at it and you know, slice it by industry, you can say, you know, I want mining, aerospace, tech, whatever it is. And kind of given my background and, you know, software engineering, what I'd always loved doing, tech was a natural fit for me. Um, I just think that's where the future is. And um, on a complete side note, when people say, you know, uh, tech is the greatest, biggest industry, I don't, I don't think that's true. I think, I think technology powers all the other industries. So if you say, for example, you know, Seek is a tech company, or you say Zero is a tech company, they're not 
in my head, you know, they use tech to achieve outcomes, right? But Seek is ultimately still in professional services or Xero is ultimately still in finances, right? And so that was probably a controversial take, but ultimately what we're saying is technology is going to power and change the world and every industry will ultimately become more and more tech-reliant. That doesn't make them a tech company. That just makes them a company that does this, that's powered by well tech. Outside of that, so Seek made sense. And I, I think the other take for me was saying, well, apart from a company that's you know got good tech and heavy on tech is, are they doing something valuable for society? And what could be more valuable than putting people into jobs, right? Um, that's something that's very key for a lot of people, and I'm sure for a lot of your listeners as well. And so, yeah, that ticked, ticked the box for me. And, and then when you go through the interview process, you get to learn a little bit more. And the people at Seek were incredible. Um, my colleagues, I am very privileged and lucky to be able to say, I feel like the dumbest one in the room, which means I get to learn a lot. Um, you know, I've got people who've got MBAs from Harvard, you know, PhDs from Yale, just an incredible caliber of people. And so I get to learn a lot from my colleagues um, and get to do a really good job. And so what more can one ask for? And so that's why I took Seek. So as a strategy manager at Seek, you have to think about how our team's structured and how I sit into it. So Seek is pretty unique in the sense that the strategy team actually has a fair bit of influence in how the organization operates. And the benefit really comes from the fact that the head office is in Melbourne, I'm in Melbourne. And so our team is split up into, you know, um, Asia and Australia and Americas because we actually operate in a lot of different countries. And we have people who focus on different sorts of strategy. We have people who do kind of what I would call, and the terminology is going to be a bit confusing here, but let's say product strategy because they think about what Seek's product actually is. And so when I say that, it'll be things like, you know, how do we help hire select the right candidates or how do we help candidates find the right jobs, right? And you need to make sure that your marketplace has the right features there or the right solutions in there that they can do that. And so that's one bucket of strategists. And then there's regional or country strategists who think about issues and complex problems that, that arise in each region. And that's where I sit. So I'm the ANZ country manager. So any issues that are specific to Australia or New Zealand, which is Seek's biggest kind of area of business, uh, come to me as the first point of call. So for example, a government agency wants to partner with Seek, you know, talk about how we solve employment for a marginalized group. They may want to partner with us. And the question that comes to me is to say, well, should Seek partner with this agency? If so, how should we partner? You know, what IP can we give up? What IP can we not give up? And those are the sorts of questions I help answer. I also do, you know, help manage a lot of market research in the local region and you know, understand what candidates want, what hires want. And that really informs a lot of our, you know, actual strategy and how we implement it. And then there's a third bucket of strategists, which we actually internally call product strategy. While we have strategists who look at Seek's product, this product strategy team internally helps translate our overall strategy into our product teams who actually build and help them prioritize and actually build that product. So you can consider them internal uh, bridges between strategy and the rest of the arms of the business internally. Um, and we call that product strategy. So yeah, there's three arms really, and I'm in the regional country manager role. Wow, uh, high-level strategy mapping in a job search company sounds super cool. I think to enable others to find that right fit and the right role for them as well, more effectively, really elaborates on what your role as a strategy manager really entails of. And also thank you for breaking down the day-to-day -day of your role and kind of giving us a 360 view of what your role looks like from all angles. And so as Danish mentioned, Seek is always working on these really cool products in the background. And they also have these other ventures as well, like Seek Business, Seek Learning, and also Seek Volunteer. I'm not just saying this because 180 DC is sponsored by Seek. 
And so for our listeners, uh, feel free to have a read up on that if you're more interested in what Seek does beyond just helping you find the right jobs. And so we're almost out of time for today. So as per tradition, one of our last questions I want to kind of swing by you is less on the side of the job and more on the side of something more personal to you, Danish. And so as someone who's been on the receiving end of offers from engineering companies, gone into Deloitte and is now working at Seek, I think you've done your fair share of interviews and you definitely know a lot about them by now. And so what is one of the hardest questions you've been asked during an interview? Not this one, uh, but kind of left you trumped or left you speechless without an answer. And if you can't think of an, anything, I guess, on that sense, uh, what is a hard question you would ask during a candidate interview that you think would challenge their thinking and how do you personally approach it? Sure. Um, I've had my fair share of interviews. And I think probably say at least a dozen that I've done, um, probably more, two dozen, I'd say. And, you know, you get a fair share of, you know, behavioral questions like, you know, what name the time you have to overcome a challenge, all the standard interview questions. And, you know, those you practice enough and they're easy-ish. Um, and then you get to kind of more technical interviews, if you will. Um, and I've done my engineering ones and those are okay. You just need to solve a problem on how you reverse a list or how do you sort a bucket of things. That's fine. You can figure it out as code. And then there's case interviews, which you get to do a lot more of in consulting and strategy. And... Um, I think as part of Seek as uh, interview process, I had to do six case interviews, which is quite rigorous. Um, and you know, some of those questions relate to Seek, and eh, they're okay. And like most case questions, you solve it by coming up with a structure and working through it, and saying, "Hey, look, you know, if it's a profit problem, it's either revenue or cost, and let's try work down that decision tree." That's all okay. One of the case interview questions I had at Seek was probably the most deceivingly hard ones, I'd say, and. Put simply, the question was, why does Google make phones? And that made me pause for a second because unlike most cases where you get a lot of information and you can even ask the interviewer, you, here you just realize, hey, look, you know, the guy I'm talking to works at Seek. He doesn't have access to Google internal information. It's just a company that we all know and we all use and it's Google and why do they make phones? And so it, it's a question that's, as a, you know, as a strategy interview and working on a case, it's very easy to answer it you know, as a knee-jerk reaction and be like, oh, Google makes phones because they want you to use their product. They want your data, right? Done. And now you realize you've got, you got 45 minutes in this interview. You really need to think about this in a lot more depth. And it's, a, it, it's an interview question that's likely not going to get asked at a graduate level, thankfully, because there's a, like, I really appreciate this question because it, it tests a variety of things. Firstly, it tests if you know, know the world you're living in and if you know tech, which is useful for a tech company, Secondly, it asks you to you know, self-evaluate what you think Google's strategy is overall or you know, understand how Google makes money. And then next, it asks you to critically think about this strategy just logically and say, well, you know, does it make sense from a revenue perspective or a data perspective or a marketing perspective? And you have to build up a structure and come up with an answer. Um, I don't think I answered that question too well. Um, the way it went was you know, I came up with a bunch of reasons it could be that they make phones you know, for data, for product research, for experimentation for you know uh, brand control whatever it may be and the interview is tough because I think the interviewer made it tough for me and maybe he disagrees uh, great guy called Jack and no matter what idea I threw at him he'd always come back and say but no why and so for example I would say things like oh you know they want to get Google you know they want to collect data on all their users that's why they put Google phones out so you can use their phones you collect data and the response was, well, but they already have Android. They have it on every other phone, Samsung, you know, HTC. They already got it, right? Well, why do they need to make their own phones? And I was like, ah, oh, damn, you're right. 
And so no matter what I threw up, there was always a response. Mm -hmm. And so I was just, you know, you, you kind of spiral down a thought being like, oh my God, this is meant to be an easy question. I know what Google does. I know why they make phones, but apparently I don't. And so you spiral down a really negative spiral quickly, but I think I did okay, you know, given that I got the job. So yeah, I think that's the hardest question I got. But so fast forwarding a year now later uh, with your experience levels and your understanding, how would you answer that question now? So you're not putting on the spot again. So I, I would paint it with whatever you understand Google is, right? You have to structure your answer because that's ultimately what they're testing for and making sure that you're not making any logical leaps. So what I would say is, firstly, you describe what your understanding of Google is, right? You'd say, well, Google to me, I understand is a search engine company that ultimately makes money of marketing. Uh, you know, if you look at their history, they've, you know, they've done initiatives like trying to get air balloons up to try and get more people into their access, et cetera, et cetera. And to me, that all kind of points to the fact that they want to get as many people online as possible. And they want to get as many people online using Google as possible, because that way, not only are they capturing data, but they can use all those visits, all those views, all that loyalty to convert to useful marketing solutions they can sell to advertisers around the world. And so when we look at their phone strategy, what you have to ask yourself is how does it support that top line? And if it doesn't, what are the other benefits it's offering you? And so I'd say, well, we know, for example, they already have Android. And I know this now because I run through the previous interview. Um, and so you have to ask yourself what they get by producing their own device that they don't already get. And so you can make a few arguments, right? First, you could, you know, and you, you structure this out and you, you draw this out in a more structured way, but you could, you could talk to it and you could say, if they wanted a higher market share, do we think that the solution is the right way to go? And then you ask yourself, you know, how much marketing are they doing for the Google Pixel devices? How much effort are they going to put in? Are, are they realistically going to beat Apple? Are they realistically going to beat Samsung? And, you know, you'd have to take a guess and say no, right? You don't realistically think they will. So I don't think they're doing it to improve market share of phones or with, you know, using Google software or Android software. So you have to kind of eliminate that branch. And you'd say, well, maybe they want to get really good at hardware manufacturing. And you'd say, well, sure, but why phones, right? Why don't they manufacture something else? Maybe they want to get good at laptops. I'm not sure, but it's an easy and profitable way or at least cost neutral way to build up a hardware manufacturing capability possible answer. And you could start looking at other answers as well, right? You could say, well, you know, what do they get by creating their own device? They retain more control, right? They could say, you know, instead of being beholden to Samsung who modifying Android their own way, Google can now test features by themselves, right? They can say anybody who owns a Pixel can now try Google Duo, can now try Google Duplex, and they can try all these features really rapidly and gain that feedback. And yeah, they could do market research, but maybe they want to do it at scale. Or maybe it's just a mix of all the previous points, right? Maybe that's why they're doing it. Or maybe they want to be able to kind of control what a Google or truly Google experience is. And so it could be a mixture of all those players. It could be some experimentation. I don't really know the answer, but the way to answer that question, if you ask that interview, is to kind of structure it out and make sure you're answering that with clear logic where you're not jumping and you're not saying, hey, you know, they're doing data because of this. And you can say, well, you know, you could collect data so many other ways. And so I think that's probably the best way to answer it. And I don't know if Jack's going to be listening to this and he was my interviewer, but if he heard that again, I'm hoping he's happier with this response than it was with <laughs> <my> first response. <laughs> wow. That's like a really hard way of viewing just interview questions itself. I just like finished mentally taking notes there because that was really intriguing to listen to, especially when you touch based on how you approach that question the first time around, uh, versus how you'd approach that question now that you've experienced your time at Seek. And to me, it really demonstrates how in consulting interviews, they can really throw those curveball questions at you. 
And so, Danish, I wanted to really extend my gratitude for you coming on today to the podcast, uh, sharing your experiences and knowledge with us, and really wish you the best for your future endeavors. Because if COVID ever does die down and uni goes back to being in person, I hope to get the chance to see you around campus. And I hope our viewers may get the chance to run into you at the MBS. But I think for now, it was just a really nice opportunity to chat with you and explore what an incredible journey you've had in the workforce. Thanks, Kevin. Yeah, I'd love to.